and we're overwhelmed with gratitude. And now I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. You'd help us to really grasp what uh, it really means to be a Christian. Because sometimes we get a funny notion. Sometimes we've maybe grown up around it, but we haven't had our own personal encounter with you. And so we've never really experienced the life of the Spirit. And I pray today that you would help us, Lord, to experience you, and maybe in a way we never have before, that would make this whole thing become uh, personalized and real and internalized in our lives, and it would create a new dynamic with new desires and a new passion towards you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, as I was thinking about John Wesley, a very noted Christian leader. Oh, okay, we're, we're changing. Okay, we're trading. That's fine. I was fine with using that. Okay. So John Wesley was actually brought up in a pastor's home. So you can imagine, you know, uh, some of you have that experience. You grew up in a pastor's home. So you're living a little different kind of life. And, and he had a very godly mother. Susanna Wesley was noted for her godliness. He was trained at Oxford, a pretty good school. Uh, studied and he later taught Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He was ordained by the Anglican Church and became the assistant pastor to his father. How nice is that, right? You're working with your dad. And it was while he was at Oxford that as a, he was a member of a, the Holy Club. Now that, that was a contemptuous name given by his, his uh, fellow students, right? And uh, he and Charles, that's his brother, along with some other students, were serious in their attempt to live a very devoted and spiritual life. And John eventually accepted a call to become a missionary to North America. So he traveled, this is like in the 18th century, right, in the 1700s, and he takes a ship and he comes over to Savannah, Georgia, and he's, he's trying to preach the gospel to the North American Indians there, and he's really not having very much success whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he says... When he was forced to return to England, he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who's going to convert me? That's a very telling statement. Like, in other words, he recognized there was some deficiency in his life. You know, God was actually working in John's life. And on that long sea voyage to America, he had a very interesting experience. There was a huge uh, storm in the Atlantic. And he was terrified. They thought they were going to drown. And then he noticed there was a group of people that were Christians. They were called Moravians. These guys were real devout followers of Christ. And, and while they were singing praises to God in the middle of the storm, John was living in absolute terror. You know, he thought he was going to die. And they were actually rejoicing. And he, and he recognized they had something in their life that he did not have in his life. And so upon returning to London, he met with uh, the leaders of the Moravian church And just to use Wesley's own words from his journal, um, he was clearly convinced of his own lack of faith. And they basically said, you know, how you become a Christian, John, is simply by trusting in what Christ has done for you. That's just that simple. But, you know, it's really hard when you've kind of grown up in the church and, you know, you know that there's spiritual disciplines and all these other things. So John was trying to, in a sense, do what was right and pleasing in God's sight so maybe God would accept him rather than just fully trusting in what Christ had done for him. And this is what he writes. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. (laughs) In other words, he had some reticence about going. He was a little reluctant to go. He said, I went to Aldersgate Street, 
where one was actually reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. I actually have that commentary on the book of Romans by Martin Luther, and I've read the preface. And believe me, it's not that inspiring. You know, I'm just being honest. It wasn't like, whoa, light, lightning bolts and stuff. But it, it's just that what was happening at that moment. He says that about quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he said, I felt my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that Christ had taken away all of my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, isn't that kind of an amazing story? I mean, until Aldersgate, John Wesley, a man who knew more theology and was more dedicated than most believers, did not know Christ personally. He did not know the saving power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, a couple of weeks ago, Glenn Breitkreitz, pastor from Grand Prairie, was here and he was sharing. And he said something that really has stayed with me and has really grieved me and has really, you know, disturbed my soul. And I, and I recognize, you know, this is something that I don't want to see a part of our church family. And, and in his message, he gave a very sto- sobering statistic. And he said this, in North America, 70% of all the young people that leave church after high school leave, leave, leave the Christian faith. And only half of them, about 35%, ever come back later on in their life. And I said to myself, God, let it not be so here. I don't want to see this. This is not, you know what, I, I want to shatter this in our church family. I want, I want us to experience, you know, the reality of your love and presence. I want our young people to know you personally. You know, that, that's the cry of my heart. And, uh, and I started thinking about it. I said, I wonder if part of the problem is that a lot of times we'll grow up in a Christian home and, and we'll, you know, we'll be taught, maybe the parents are good Christians and they, and they know that there's some boundaries or guidelines that they're living by, but you know, we, what, what the kids get is, don't do this and do that. And they've never had that same experience. You know, they haven't had that personal encounter with Christ. And so for them, it just becomes a bunch of rules. It becomes very do's and don'ts. It just becomes very institutionalized. Well, you've got to go to church. Yeah, but church is boring. Can I be honest with you? When I was growing up as a kid, I thought church was boring. I'm being flat out honest. I mean, I'd, I'd try to miss it if I could. You know, I was a little rebel. I'm being honest about that. You know, as a matter of fact, my best friend who once came to visit me here in Red Deer as I'm starting this church, he goes, you know what I can't get over? You're the kid that hated church and now you're a pastor. I said, yeah, God has a great sense of humor. Since I've been making up for it ever since. All the services I've missed, I've, I've probably doubled and tripled them. Believe me, you know, I've been to so many services. But that's, that's not the point. The point is, when your heart is changed by God, when you experience the Holy Spirit in your life, your desires begin to change. What you formerly had no interest in, now you have a total interest in. And the things you were once interested in, you know, the things that were wrong and unhealthy for you, all of a sudden you go, why would I want to do that? you lose a desire for the things that are wrong. Isn't that an amazing transformation that God wants to bring in our lives? Now, you know, a lot of us, we could say, yeah, you know, this great pastor, you're talking about stuff I'm already, I already know about. But the, the question I'm trying to raise today is how does one move from being religious to having this personal, experiential, 
encounter with Almighty God, to have the Holy Spirit working in your life, to have that transformation that God promises us in the Scriptures. And before you tune me out and you say, well, I'm already a Christian pastor. I don't need to hear this. Let me give you one text of Scripture before you tune me out. Here it comes. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's an interesting question. Am I really a believer? It says, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So in other words, he's challenging the church there to examine themselves to make sure that, yes, I truly am a Christian. I'm not just institutionalized. I'm not just attending church. I'm not just having a head understanding. Intellectually, I know the right things, but I've never really experienced this dynamic, personal, living relationship with God. That's important. So how do you move from institutional church life to this dynamic relationship? And here at the close of Acts chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, I see, we see two examples of how an imperfect understanding of religion eventually can you know, either keep you away or actually bring you to. And I think the latter is the truth. That, you know, we have, sometimes we have all kinds of good stuff put into our lives and then eventually brings about transformation into our lives. And so we're going to see that no matter how sincere or passionate people are about their religion, it's always less than what happens when God comes in reality and in power. And we saw that in John Wesley's life. I mean, this guy was more devoted than most Christians, and yet he wasn't a Christian. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's kind of an amazing. You know, if you read Reese Howell's Intercessors, the same thing. Some of these people were very devoted and they were seeking God. And you know, the Bible said, if you seek God with all of your heart, you will find him. And eventually they came to this place where they had this personal encounter with God and it transformed their lives. So we're going to look at three things today that causes a change from religion to relationship. And, I, and the first one is we need to be instructed. We need to have a personal instruction. We need to have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And there we find in the story in Acts chapter 18, between Paul's second and third missionary journey, a little incident that occurred between his exploratory visit to Ephesus and his three-year ministry there. And so he leaves behind in the city of Ephesus, one of the great uh, cities of the ancient world, two friends, Aquila and Priscilla. And he goes on to Jerusalem to fulfill a vow. We pick it up in Acts chapter 18 and verse 18. He says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Caesarea or Censoria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to spend more time with them, but he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Now, most scholars believe that Paul was doing a Nazarite vow. And, and they're usually, you know, like when we think of Nazarites, we always think of Samson, you know, letting his hair grow and for the whole lifetime. But really the reality was in the Old Testament, it was usually a very short duration. And it was a specific thing like God, if, you know, it's kind of the negotiating thing. You know, if you do this, I'll do that, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and so while Paul is gone, to, to do that, we have another character in the book of Acts that's introduced to us. A very interesting man by the name of Apollos. And it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man. Some translations say he was an eloquent man. You know, the language there, eloquent and learned, were very 
synonymous in the, in the Greek language there. And it says, he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Hmm. Now he's coming from Alexandria. Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It was located in the Nile Delta in Egypt. It was a center of education that was famous for its library, city of philosophy, founded after Alexander the Great. You know, I think sometimes when we think of Cleopatra, we think of her as being Egyptian. She was actually a Greek, because if you study the history, you'll find out that uh, Alexander's four generals split up his kingdom, and one of them, you know, the Ptolemies moved to Egypt. And she's a, she's a, a, a Ptolemy, really. And so they're Greeks. And so they're into education. How many know the Greeks were really into philosophy and that kind of stuff? So we get all of this information, and even the Jewish community there, you know, you have a guy by the name of Philo who's writing, he's trying to integrate Old Testament texts with Greek philosophy. Very fascinating. But this population of Alexandria was about 600,000, and it was made up of Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, and Jews. And the Jewish community was extremely influential in Alexandria. Okay, and they were actually made up a quarter of the population. Isn't that amazing? So that's a big, big group of people. It was, it was there that the, the Bible, the Old Testament Hebrew, was translated into Greek, and what we call the Septuagint today. So here was a man who was passionate about what he knew, but it was not a complete message. He only knew about John the Baptist. He, he was preaching about the promise from the Old Testament about a coming Messiah. He'd heard about John the Baptist. He was talking about this hope. And so in Acts 18.25, it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke, the way of the Lord means speaking of, you know, Yahweh. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. In other words, he taught about Jesus in the sense of, you know, talked about the, the messianic hope. That's what he's talking about here. And then it says, um, here we find God's providence. In other words, God's going to do something to help this man come to a more complete understanding. You know, he's, he's got some of it down, but he doesn't have the full picture. And so we pick it up in chapter 18, verse 26. It says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. In other words, they said, hey... Yeah, you're right. Everything you're saying is correct, but you've stopped at John the Baptist. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And then they began to tell about how John pointed to Jesus. Jesus came, and they gave him the whole thing. And you know, Apollos becomes a follower of Christ. He becomes a believer. And so, what had been strictly a religious belief was now now he's genuinely connected to Christ in a personal way. And the result of this experience you know, was that Apollos, who was probably an Old Testament scholar, raised in the blended world of Hebrew custom and Greek culture, he desires to be a blessing. And so he now leaves and goes to Corinth to teach. You know, because this guy is a good communicator. And so it says in verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Acacia, which is a province in Greece where Corinth was the main center, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And on arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay? So he's doing that. And and so what we see here is this overlap of the Old Testament followers of God now beginning to embrace the promises of God and seeing it fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
Here we see how a biblical religion can lead to a relationship. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're in church or we're in our homes. We'll say it this way. We're instructing little children in Christianity. We're instructing them in the Bible. Why is that important? Because this information helps people come to faith in Christ. Okay? You think about it. You know, how does faith come to us? How does faith in God come to people? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then it goes on to say in the book of Romans chapter 10, and how can they hear unless there's a preacher, right? And how can they preach unless they be sent? I mean, it's very interesting how God works and brings these things out. And so it's very important that we go out and we communicate the word of God to people so that when people hear the word of God, something happens within us and all of a sudden faith is born in our hearts and we begin to internalize this living, dynamic, life-changing word and we become followers of Christ. Very powerful. So we have to see that it's not just a mental assent to certain ideas. So being a Christian is not just, I believe certain things about Jesus Christ. And you can even believe all the right things about Jesus Christ. And it's not necessarily that I'm a Christian until I have that encounter with him and I experience his Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, it changes something on the inside of me that I, that I change my mind about the way I've been living and thinking and my priorities. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm repenting is what I'm doing. I'm changing my mind. That's what repentance is. And now I'm putting my complete trust and confidence in God and I'm going to live to serve him and do his will. It's a change of life. It's a transformation. And so if I'm only getting the information, but I'm not having the, you know, experience, then I'm I'm not getting the full meal deal. You know what I mean? I'm not getting it. I'm getting just enough of it so that I'm institutionalized to some degree and I'm coming to church and then it's easy for me to be offended by people. Isn't that true? Because how many know in the church people are imperfect? And the church was never designed to be perfect. It's designed to create a context and an environment and an atmosphere and a, and a community of faith that would nurture and encourage us in our spiritual development and growth. But we have to have that encounter with God. It is so critical. Well, you know, it's pretty humbling you know, to have a humble couple explain to you that as a scholar that you're, you don't have it all together. But that's happened over and over again through church history. That God has raised up people, they've become biblical scholars, but they didn't know Christ personally, but eventually some humble saint comes along into their life and shares the good news and the person becomes a believer. And then they become a powerhouse because now they have all that background and information. All of a sudden, everything's starting to make sense. You have that aha moment. Let me move on to the second thing that causes a change from religion to relationship. It's through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is a spiritually invigorating life. God's presence comes and dwells within us. That's amazing. You know, I still remember that moment as a brand new Christian. I'm reading my Bible and I'm reading Colossians and it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I have this, whoa, Christ lives in me. Well, you say, well, pastor, didn't you ask him in your life? Yeah, but you can, you can go through a form, but then you have that, oh, I get it. And then I started thinking, the God whom the heavens cannot contain is living inside of me. I mean, that kind of messes with your head a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, who am I that the God of the universe is living inside of me? That does something for me. It did something for me that day, I'll tell you. I was pretty excited, you know? 
I think we need to have a few aha moments in our lives like that. It says now in Acts 19, while Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived in Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Now remember, these were Jewish people that had some faith, but they didn't understand correctly who Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand about the, the, the second and third person of the Trinity. They had an incomplete understanding and had not received Christ as they had read and heard only about the baptism of John because Apollos had been there and he had told them what he knew. But it was an incomplete understanding. So they had never received the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, how many realize that the Bible, you know, only gives us a brief overview of what's happening? Often we are left with incredible gaps, you know. Aren't we funny? We almost think God owes us an explanation. Do you know God owes us nothing? You know, some of us, we have questions for God. But, you know, if God doesn't want to answer them, he doesn't. How many have had that experience? You've asked God a question, he didn't give you an answer. But who am I to ask God what he's doing? You know, it's like, really? God goes, you just have to trust me, you know. You know, it's like a five-year-old asking you a question. You go, this is way too complicated to answer a five-year-old. So sometimes you give him a real simple answer, right? Because you can't give them the full meal deal. You just blow them out of the water. You start talking, they won't even know what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes we're like the five-year-old. God's going, I'm going to give you a real simple answer. You know, that's it. That's all you're getting. Because if I really went into detail, I'd lose you. He, we would. He would. You know? So now we have him... You know, traveling 1,500 miles from Antioch to Ephesus. And he's ministering everywhere he's going. Look what it says in verse, uh, uh, chapter, I didn't put this one in. Oh, okay, yeah. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia and strengthened all the disciples. You know, I, I always wonder, what's going on here? There's all kinds of stories going on. We never hear those stories. You think... All the miracles are, you know, Luke is recounting them all. No, he's just giving us highlights, you know. Wow. So, you know, now he comes to Ephesus. We find 12 men who are only instructed about John the Baptist's ministry. They didn't have a complete understanding. And that's exactly what happened to John Wesley. Unless the Holy Spirit is at work within our lives, we are not born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. And you must be born of the Spirit. We must... It's a supernatural work within us. It's not just an intellectual ascent or understanding of the Christian faith. It's an experience, an encounter with God, the Spirit within our hearts. And when that happens, it makes all the difference in the world. It was obviously something was lacking in their life. Look at, look at Acts chapter 19, verse 3. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? And they said, well, John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, uh, and now we find out more than just instruction, but an experience is going to happen in their lives. Now, as a result of their faith in Christ and being baptized... Paul lays his hands on them, and the power and presence of God comes into their lives. And we know that because in Acts 19, it says, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. It's an interesting statement. There were about 12 men. You know, it's like, we just think, well, there were 12 men. No, he's just telling us there was a bunch of men there, probably about 12. And 
The number is not that significant. What's significant is what happens to them. What he's trying to tell us is exactly what happened to them happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. It's what happened to Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10. It's what happened to Paul himself in Acts chapter 9. They had an experience with the Holy Spirit. Does everybody follow this? Very powerful. So I think about this now. I wonder sometimes if the lack of witness that comes from so many believers is directly related to the lack of God's empowering presence in their life. What do you think? I mean, if we're alive in the Spirit, I I mean, just think about it. If you're encountering the Spirit of God and it's living and you're running into people and they're asking questions, you know what? You're going to be concerned about people because the presence of Christ in you is going to want to reach out to people. You know? And I think the more impacted we are by God's Spirit the more dynamic our life becomes. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm convinced right now, like sometimes we feel like being a Christian is a boring life. And maybe the problem is, it's not so much Christianity is boring, but maybe it's that we're not Im- impacted by the Spirit enough. See, I'm, I'm going to flip this around a little bit. I'm saying if I have a, you know, you have an encounter with the true and the living God and you're totally impacted by Him, it's going to affect how you relate to other people. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's going to happen, you know. I remember as a brand new Christian, wow, you could not stop me, you know. You know, I, I just wanted to tell people, hey, listen, you know what? I've just discovered what life is all about. I wanted everybody to know. Anybody else have that kind of an experience? I just got to tell everybody, you know. Hey, I just, I just experienced this amazing life-transforming experience, and I want everybody to experience what I've got. And then I found out not everyone was interested. You know, that was a shock to me. I thought, you know, just, just let me give you this information. I know it's going to, you know, it's going to revolutionize your life like it's doing to mine. And they're looking at you like, I'm not interested. I'm going, really? What's wrong with you guys, right? And then you start learning, you know. And then you get around other Christians in the church. And this is what they say, oh, it'll wear off. Isn't that true? You know, can I just say something? I've been a Christian now 42 and a half years. It has not worn off. You know? I'm being honest. It's not worn off once. As a matter of fact, I am more excited about Christ today than I've ever been. You know? And I'm getting, not more radical, but I'm, I'm just getting more bold. I'm just, I'm, I'm believing and saying, you know, we were at Alpha the other night. Some of the guys were around my table. You know, this guy suffering a migraine. I, I thought to myself, you know, God wants to do miracles. And in the early church, they prayed, God, could you continue to do these miracles so people will experience miracles and then they'll become believers, right? And isn't that what was happening? So I said, hey, maybe God will do more for this non-believer and help them come to faith. So I said, let's pray for God to do a miracle. I said, is that okay? We prayed for this guy. And it was neat. He says, I feel something. I said, what do you feel? He says, I feel fuzzy. I go, what does that mean? He goes, this is exactly how I feel when my medication kicks in and I start feeling better. I went, oh, that's good, right? So I'm I'm interested to go back next Tuesday night and find out what happened because I want to hear the rest of the story, right? You say, why is this so important to you? Because I want to see people's lives transformed by the power of God. I know that it's real, you know? So when the Spirit comes in power, He will enable us to testify fearlessly of Christ. Let me move on to the third thing, is the impact and reality of God's power at work in others. You know, you can't fake this. Well, some people try to do it, you know. When God is at work and He's really working, people see it. When it's real and authentic, people go, I want that, you know. We long for that kind of experience in our lives, 
to witness the reality of God. When God is at work in powerful ways, people become convicted and they become convinced of the reality of God's presence. But you know, some people are going to reject it. I've already said that. Some are going to deny it. Look at Acts 19.11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. I love that word. You know, he didn't just do miracles. He was doing extraordinary miracles. Yeah, I'm saying, Lord, bring it on. You know, let's, let's see some extraordinary miracles. I mean, we've got all these naysayers and doubters in our culture today. How many say that's true? You know, some of them, they just need some extraordinary miracles to happen in their lives. And, you know, it's, it's not going to save everybody. Let, let's be honest. Miracles aren't going to convince everybody. I mean, you know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. and Half of them believed and the other half ran off and said, we've got to kill this guy. <laughs> you know, like the miracle didn't do any good. So, you know, sometimes we have this idea, oh God, if you just do this miracle in this situation, they'd become a believer. Not necessarily. But it wouldn't hurt we have a few miracles, Lord. <laughs> you know, you know, some of these people will come, become believers, right? So it says here, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that, he that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Isn't that amazing? You know, Paul's working away, sweating, throws down a rag, somebody scarfs it up, brings it over to somebody's house. All of a sudden, this evil spirit is inside of a person. Ah, evil spirit, just touched by the handkerchief, is fleeing the person. I'm going, this is amazing. I mean, that's what it says. I'm just reading what it's stated here. People that are sick, all of a sudden they're healed. I go, this is amazing. Paul reminds the Corinthians that the message was more than just words. He says in 1 Corinthians, My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, it's not just words, folks. There is a reality behind these words. They're life-giving. They're powerful. They're, they're, they're transformative in nature. They're, they bring about change. They're creative. You know, and, and God spoke and there was light. God speaks and all of a sudden change happens in our lives. Wow, this is powerful stuff. Now we find that, you know, so, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. Now we find that there were those in Ephesus who tried to counterfeit what the Holy Spirit was doing through the Apostle Paul. Does not go good for these guys. I'll tell you that right now. So there were some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. It says, seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. So they're running around trying to exercise things, right? Everybody follow that. One day the evil spirit answers them. Jesus I know, and I know about Paul but who in the world are you? You have no authority over us. And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. So the one guy beats up these seven guys. So don't mess with this unless you've got the power, right? And then it says, he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is not a fun experience, Right? Now, what happens as a result of this? Now, Luke records this for us. It says it was kind of a heightened spiritual awareness. Do you know when God starts moving in supernatural ways, people are deeply affected? Does anybody know that? I mean, you get somebody who's, you know, been a, you know, a vile sinner that everybody's written off and they become converted and passionate about God. You can't just dismiss that. You know, something happened to this guy, you know? 
Or you, you know, or you get a guy like David Wilkerson who went to New York City and the government is giving, you know, all the drug addicts substitute another drug, methadone, to help them overcome their heroin addiction. And they have a, like a 2 to 3% success rate. And David Wilkerson comes, you know, just a country preacher, you know, a little Pentecostal boy goes down. He has no idea about the big city. He has no, you know... I wouldn't even say his theology has to be super great. He just goes believing and prays for these guys. And all of a sudden, people are coming off drug addiction, cold turkey. And they have like an 80% you know, retention rate. How many go, that's the power of God. You know, that's how Teen Challenge got born. If you didn't know the story, it's an amazing story. It says, and when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. I love this statement. The fear of God came on them. You know, I say to myself, probably one of the greatest needs in the church in North America today is that we had actually experienced the fear of the Lord. And when you say, well, what's the fear of God? Well, let me explain it to you. The fear of God is a transformative change. Probably I'm being redundant there. Transformative is a change. But, you know, a, a real change in our lives that affects the way I think and my behavior and how I talk. You know? How many know that if I'm inebriated, I'm drunk, I'm, I, you know, I went out to the bar and I drank too much. How many know I'm going to be influenced? And we actually describe it under the influence of, right? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have previously been under the influence and you knew that your behavior was altered. How many can say, I, I, I understand all that? Isn't that true? Do you know when the Holy Spirit comes on us, it's not quite the same because you're actually in control Whereas when you're drunk, you're out of control. You have no self-control, right? You don't have self-control. But when you're under the Spirit's control, you have self-control. Matter of fact, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But something dynamic is happening in your life. And it's the opposite. You're under the influence of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, you're loving people that you once couldn't stand. How many things? Amazing. You know, when I'm having an encounter with God, even the person that's done me the most damage, and they can be my worst enemy, I can walk up and just love on them. You know why? Because the Spirit in me can love anybody. The Spirit in me can forgive anybody. The Spirit in me gives me a courage I don't normally have. He's altering me. Isn't that amazing? You know, we don't change ourselves. It's the Spirit in us that changes us. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to work in that kind of power. It says now, many of those who believe now came openly and confessed their evil deeds. Do you say, Pastor, what is revival? Revival is a time when the Spirit comes in an extraordinary way. And all of a sudden, people are convicted of their sins. First step in revival is a deep conviction that what I've been doing is wrong. There's a lot of Christians living in sin and we're quenching the spirit. Ephesians says, do not quench the spirit. I'm quoting Ephesians 4.30. Do not quench the spirit. When God starts working in your life in an extraordinary way, believe me, you're going to become highly sensitive to what pleases God and what displeases God. You can tell how close you are to God by how sensitive you are to light and darkness. It's amazing your sensitivity levels go way up. All of a sudden, you desire to do the will of God. You want to please God. You know, you know what superstition is or religion is? It's humanity's attempt to manipulate God so that they can do their own will and somehow appease God. Come on now. I think even Christians play this game. 
Yeah, we're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to say, I'm going to do this for you so I can do my own thing. Can I tell you what really needs to happen? We need transformation. Well, all of a sudden, we lay down our thing and we embrace God's thing. That's transformation, folks. That's real change. You know, it says here, many of them believed none, came and openly confessed their evil deeds. The number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. These people were willing to give up something that they highly valued for a long time. And that was the black arts. And they just laid it all aside. They turned away from idolatry. They turned away from their sin. We need preaching that says we've got to turn from sin. You see, when you tell people, oh, just believe in Jesus, brother, you'll be saved. And then we just keep living in our sin. Do you think people are really saved? I don't think so. When the Holy Spirit comes and you have an encounter with him, something is so radically and so dramatically different. How do you think a holy God can live in an unholy vessel? It's not going to work. Something's got to give. Is this making sense? Sure it is. God is a holy God. That, you know, we, we think holiness means we're perfect. No, it means that we are now set apart for God's purpose. We understand it. I understand. I'm not my own. I, I belong to him. I've been bought by him. You know, everything about my life belongs to him. You know, I don't even have a problem. You know, it's amazing when you really get saved, you don't have financial hang-ups. You know, people are get all hung up on, you know, tithing or giving. I go, you need to get saved. Nice. I'm saying that in a nice way, but you need—you really need to experience more of the Holy Spirit, because all that stuff goes away. You just go, "Hey, I'm only a manager. You're the owner. You everything. You own everything. You own everything about my life. If you want to take me home tomorrow, that's your business. I'm only here as long as God wants me here, and I'm here to do what you want me to do. Wow, different way of looking at life, huh? In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Wow, I I like these verses. And those who were trying to drive out demons were overpowered because they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power of God. They lacked a genuine relationship with Christ. They had a religion, but no relationship. So Luke is describing that there are moments in our encounter with God's powerful presence that it creates a healthy respect for God, a conviction of evil practices in our lives, which we forsake. There's a healthy break from the past. There's one of, one, that's one of the differences between just taking on a new religion to experiencing the power of God's presence in our lives. Well, what kind of a world was the first century? And I love what Glenn brought out, but let me just quote a little bit here from uh, Larry Richards. The view of reality in the ancient world was characterized by certain elements, an impersonal universe, an impersonal fate, an essential purposelessness, no hope for relationships with a faithful deity. Within the framework of this common belief, man lived out his life, the lifestyle of the age had gradually lost the optimism of the early Greek philosophers and was now burdened down with uh, pluralism, which is what we have today, right? Many competing philosophies of life that's being advanced. Relativism, which each individual chooses his or her own thing. Accepting the notion that what might be right for me may not be right for you. That's relativism. And then superstition, with a variety of straws grasped at, at the hope of finding something to satisfy. Syncretism, um, with religious and philosophical notions from many sources combined and recombined in an effort to find meaning. So we're syncretistic. We're just taking all these different religious ideas and building our own religion today. People are doing that all the time. 
You know, if ever there was a similar time to the first century, today is that time. We have the same opportunity to bring the same power of our message that moves people past religion into a life-giving hope-filled relationship with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Obviously, I quoted it. I like it, you know. But here's the question. Have you moved from religion to relationship? That's a great question. Do you have a form of godliness or are you experiencing the power of godliness? Do you have a personal relationship which creates a healthy reverence for God and a conviction of sin that causes you to forsake it and break from its sinful past? Or are you walking in God's kind of wisdom which produces a changed life with new appetites and desires to please God? Or are you just experiencing an institutional form of Christianity having a knowledge but not the experience of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Only you can answer it. Only I can answer it. What my prayer is, I want you to get the real thing. Right? You know, Coke had a little jingle. It's the real thing. It ain't the real thing. The real thing is Jesus. And have, have you, do you have him? You know? Because if you have him, you got the real thing. You need the power, the experience of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's stand this morning. I want to pray with us today. Some of you are saying, you know what, Pastor? Boy, this, this is exciting. How many goes, this is, this is not just church. This is an encounter. You see, you don't realize this, but one of the things I've been doing for over 25 years is I have men join me for prayer. And then I have congregants join me for prayer at 8.30. And we pray. My number one prayer. I don't want you just to come here and have church. You can go anywhere for that. I want you to have an encounter. My prayer is that you're going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's going to bring about transformation. That's my prayer for you. You know, that's why, you know, I was telling the guys earlier, I said, you know, when, they, when I was teach, learning church growth stuff, they said, you know, just preach 20 minutes, make it light and keep it funny. That's how you grow a church. I'm going, that's not my goal. My goal is for transformation. What good is it if you have thousands of people coming, but there's no change in their lives? No good at all. I want you to experience the power of the risen Christ. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit today. I want your life to be changed. I want your desires to move from the things of this world that are so unhealthy to the things above. That you will live to please God. You will find joy in the presence of God. You'll move from religion in all of its rigidity. Do you know, isn't it sad? Jesus comes along and they're looking to entrap him and they see him standing there and there's a man with a withered hand and they wanted to know if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. These guys are so locked into their religion and Jesus knew it. He just said, stretch out your hand. Because he said, is it good to do good or evil on the Sabbath? In Jesus' mind, not to do anything was evil. When he had the power to change his life. He says, stretch out your hand. And in that moment, his hand was healed. And you know, immediately what happened in the hearts of those religious people? They wanted to kill Jesus. See, that's when you know you have religion. You're so hung up on the rules 
that you have no compassion for the people around you. Jesus did some interesting stuff that, you know, if you're a, a, a rule keeper, you'd have been flipping out, you know? He's going, oh, by the way, these guys are going, we're hungry. He said, that's okay. Just go, you know, eat some corn off the field. That, by the way, that was legitimate, but it was on the Sabbath. And so Jesus was being criticized for that. He goes, haven't you heard? King David went to the priest and he said, we're hungry. The priest said, well, only food I've got here is the bread that's offered to God that only the priests are entitled to eat. And then the priest said, but if you've kept yourself undefiled, he says, we'll give you that bread. He stretched the rules. Why? Because he had compassion. You see, God is a compassionate God. He cares about people. But you can't walk with God because you and I can't figure out what should I do or what shouldn't I do unless you've got the spirit of the living God living inside of you. Then you get it. You know, then you get it. So with every head bowed here this morning, some of you say, you know what, Pastor? I'm examining my soul right now. This is challenging me. I'm trying to break you out of a mold right now. I'm trying to rattle your cage on purpose today. I want you to experience the Holy Spirit. I want you to experience Christ. I want the Holy Spirit to so quicken you and awaken you and transform your heart. You're going to walk out of here going, man, I just encountered God. I now know it's not just I know the right things. I've experienced the right one. I have an experience with God now. It's not just information. I've moved now from religion to relationship. How many here, you're honest enough to say, you know what, Pastor? As I'm listening to this, I realize I've been in religion. But today, I want to open my heart and invite the power of the living, risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to so invade my life that it will transform me. And that's you today. God's speaking to you right now. Just raise your hand. That's you. Don't be ashamed. John Wesley was one of the most devout person that ever lived. And God changed him. The most devout person ever. I mean, this guy was so devout. But then that one evening, he realized, you know what? In that storm, I don't have that kind of faith these people have. I'm afraid to die, and they're rejoicing in it. And then that one night, in that place, the Spirit of God opened his heart. He said, I was strangely warmed, and I now had an assurance that I was trusting in Christ and Him alone. And it changed his whole life. And you know, John Wesley went on. They wouldn't let him preach in the Anglican church because he was too radical. He ended up preaching in the fields. And all the poor people, 5,000, 10, 15, 20,000 people came to hear him. And they had a great move of God in England. They had a revival in that nation because John Wesley opened his heart to God. Are you that person today saying, you know, I'm going to open my heart to God today. I'm moving from religion to relationship. I want it. Just raise your hand. Let's reach out to heaven. Raise your hand. That's you. Man, there's a lot of people raising their hand right now. That's awesome. It's good. Beautiful. God's speaking to you today. Just do it. Just say, I want to encounter you, the true and the living. I want an encounter with you. I want to experience your spirit. I want to be changed. Let me pray with you right now. Father, you see the cry of my brothers and sisters' hearts. These are good people, Lord. You know they're good people. You love them. And they have all the right wiring. But you know what? Now you're going to just plug them in. 
You're just going to invigorate them with your presence right now. They're going to come alive. All the stuff they've been taught these years is going to quicken in their spirit. They're going to come alive in you. They're going to be empowered by your life. They're going to be transformed by your grace. We thank you, Father. I have felt such an urgency in my soul that this would happen in our lives. I pray for our young people. I pray for our middle-aged, our old people, Lord, that we would not just live in the cupboard of religion, but we would experience the power and the dynamic and the excitement of your spirit leading us in courageous ways we've never gone before because you are, are taking us to a place we've never been before. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's your prayer. God heard your cry. That's your prayer. God heard your cry. God bless you as you leave this morning.